Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 12th, not the 12th. It's October the 18th, 2022. My dates are getting mixed up. A Tuesday, the only day of the week for the publishing industry. It's still an archaic industry. It only seems to release its new products on a Tuesday. We're going to be talking about an important new book out today. We've done a number of shows on surveillance of one kind or another. The, 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 the coming, or what some people see as the coming dystopia, of surveillance, of course, with the great Dave Edgars. Uh, we've done two couple of shows with him, one about his new book, The Every, one about Circle, uh, The Circle. Uh, did a show with Shoshana Zuboff, uh, who came up with the term surveillance capitalism as the dystopia that Silicon Valley is imposing upon us. Uh, shows on the new surveillance state in China, one with uh, a German uh, writer, Kai Strit matter. We have been harmonized. Another with a couple of um, Wall Street Journal writers recently, Josh Chin and Lisa Lin, uh, surveillance state. It's all very chilling. We're being watched all the time. Uh, even our vaccine passports in the time of COVID are creating surveillance state. Um, can we ever escape it? Many people believe that it's so ubiquitous, it's so all around us, that it is indeed inescapable. And recent guest even talked about this surveillance state being uh, a form of brainwashing. Uh, Danny Pick was on the show recently. So the really interesting thing, though, is surveillance is everywhere. It's almost uh, a cliche now. The question then becomes, what comes after surveillance? What comes after brainwashing? My guest today has a new book, a piece of fiction about that world. It's called Poster Girl. It's by Veronica Roth. She's one of uh, America's leading writers, a best-selling New York Times writer. And she's joining us appropriately enough from New York, where she's celebrating the release of the book today, Poster Child. Uh, not Poster Child, Poster Girl. Veronica, welcome. Have I... Um, have I misrepresented your dystopia? Is it a book about a post-surveillance world? Is that oversimplified? Um, I mean, any summary of a book is a simplification, but no, I would say that's pretty accurate, yeah. So tell me about the world that you're imagining. Um, there's something in the dystopian world called the insight, which operates a piece of technology which knows everything in our head. Um, tell me about this device, the inside. Yeah, so it's an ocular implant basically injected into people's eyes when they're infants um, that uses like pieces of their body to kind of build its structure around their brain. That's like my fake science justification for it. But really it serves the same functions as a smartphone um, maybe a little bit exaggerated, but it uh, tracks a person's location. Um, it kind of like records what they see, but it also supplies them with information, you know, about the world around them. And, um, you know, they can listen to music, they can watch a movie with a friend, they can do class assignments. Like it's an all purpose device that exists in the world of this novel. 
but the novel takes place uh, 10 years after this authoritarian regime has collapsed. So the insight is no longer in use at the start of Poster Girl. So it's a post insight. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a lovely, lovely use of that word, post insight novel. Uh, Veronica, um, d- d- can the insight get into our soul? Is there any bit of us that it, it can't see? Well, I I think if, uh, indeed we do have a soul. I mean, that might be a rather that's, uh, that's a big a, question. A, a bit of a leap. But yeah, I would say that's sort of the discovery of the main character of this book. So at the start, she's like you like you alluded to, a little bit brainwashed, um, and so she thinks of this thing as a companion, a kind of friend. Um, but over the course of the novel, she begins to see how little it actually, like it's a machine, I don't know, uh, which sounds obvious, but I think the way we relate to our devices sometimes, you know, it, it's not as obvious as it probably should be. Like this thing is watching you and dispassionately, it has no opinion about you. Um, yeah. Is there politics there from, from you? I mean, are you uh, a critic like Dev Eggers and so many other guests, Shoshana Zuboff of our, current surveillance state, if, if that's indeed the right way to describe it, where we all carry these devices around with us that know everything we're thinking, everything we're buying, everywhere we're going? Um, yeah, I find it profoundly creepy, <laughs> I guess. I, um, I think the trick with talking about this is getting people to care about it. Um, because often when I bring this subject up with people, they say, well, I have nothing to hide. Um, and I just think that's uh, that's a little bit short-sighted in general. Like I understand that perspective, but um, I do think that people came to a different understanding of it after the Supreme Court decision about Roe v. Wade recently, because a lot of women I know were using apps to track their period. And if the government can purchase your data, then they can you know, use that data uh, for whatever purposes they choose. And something that was okay for you to do that you didn't need to hide yesterday could be something that you do need to hide today. So it's, uh, you know, our feeling that we have nothing to hide depends very much on our understanding of how stable our government is and how uh, consistent it is over time. And I just think these things change a lot faster and more suddenly than people believe. So, um, yeah, I do. Uh, I have a bit of a soapbox about this. I, I don't think it needs to be entirely on the user. Um, because opting out of social media, for example, completely is a big ask and not a terribly realistic one. But um, it seems to me that we should advocate for more transparency with how our data is being used. Are you more worried as Zuboff and Dave Edgars are about everything being known about us by private companies or the China model where the government knows everything about us? That's a that's a really good question. I was just thinking about it as you were uh, talking about all the titles you've you've talked about so far. I think, ooh, I guess I don't see them as as being so different. <laughs> Although mm-hmm. I I suppose in in Poster Girl there is a conversation where someone says it was bad enough when we gave this information to companies, but the worst part is when we gave it to our government. Um, and I don't know if I agree with that character or not, but I, I suppose I am a little more worried about the government, but I can't tell if that's because I've read too many of the previous dystopian novels that have dealt with mass surveillance. 
So uh, which, which of those novels most influenced you in terms of writing Poster Girl or, or just more broadly? What are the, the dystopian novels that you haven't been able to put down or, haven't, or the, the novels that haven't been able to put you down? Well, I suppose my first introduction to dystopia, well, not my first, my first as an adult, because my first dystopia was actually The Giver by Lois Lowry, which is not such a, I mean, it's a bit of a surveillance state, but not, not so much. But 1984, of course, um, is probably mm. the most influential. But it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit different. You know, in 1984, it's like Big Brother was put into your wall um, by someone else and is a, like an oppressive force. But lately, I think the way we conceive of surveillance is more voluntary like I put this thing into my pocket I signed up for all of the various ways that my data is used so um, that's kind of the, the the kind of new form of surveillance so I guess um, followers by Megan Angelo is an, a recent influence um, it's a little bit more about social media and that culture which strikes me as like the most profound way that we're all volunteering to be surveilled in 1984, of course, the hero, if that's the right word, was Winston Smith, a young man, or maybe not such a young man. Your book is about a girl, um, Sonia Cantor. Do you see uh, the, the gendered aspect important um, in, in, in terms of this narrative and perhaps in terms of the narrative more broadly of dystopian literature? Well, I think for this book in particular, she, as the title suggests, uh, was the face on propaganda posters. And so there is a uniquely gendered aspect to that. She's selected for that because she's young and beautiful. And then um, she's held accountable for it, which, uh, you know, is, is something the novel explores, like to what extent she's responsible for the harm that um, she helped to perpetuate and or not. That's like the question, one of the big questions of the novel. But I, I do think she had to be a woman for this story to work um, because she's kind of valued only for her face, which is something that a lot of women are familiar with. So, um, and also the, uh, while it's not like as, uh, it's not like a feminist dystopia, you know, in the history of, of feminist dystopia that we're familiar with, like the power or the Handmaid's Tale, but there is a gendered component to the way the government exerts its control over citizens, which I don't want to dig into too much because it's sort of a revelation she comes to gradually. Yeah, we don't want to give away the book because we want everyone buying it. Uh, of course, uh, Margaret Atwood is ubiquitous and she's been on the show. Um, everybody's read The Handmaid's Tale or they should have. Um, are there comparisons <laughs> with your book, Poster Girl, and, and Atwood's work, particularly Handmaid's Tale, which deals obviously with a, a, a dystopia uh, where sexuality is essentially outlawed? Um, I think to the extent that like all dystopia is in conversation with itself, you know, it's like, it's a canon. So everybody's talking to each other and everything that you read, you know, up until the point that you write your book kind of enters your mind. Um, but I wouldn't say that they have, they have a huge amount of overlap, no. You're sort of concerned with different things. There's not a lot of concern about sexuality in this book. But there is a concern over, over looks and a, maybe not so much sexuality, but aesthetics and, and, and what you're responsible for and what you're not. Are we, um, are we Veronica, responsible for our own faces? <laughs> not really. <laughs> 
Why, why do you laugh at you... that? I mean, uh, I think uh, a poet, I, I, I can't remember, some British poet once famously said, uh, you know, we get the faces we get, but by 50 or 60, those faces are what we deserve. Oh, <laughs> I mean, there is an extent to which we have control over our appearance, right? I choose how I present myself to you. You choose how you present yourself to me. But also there's, you know, there's things you can't control. By having, or maybe unlucky by being, by having a pretty face. Yeah. Or at I least think, a photogenic uh, face. I was just talking about this the other day because beauty is sort of, it's complicated, especially for women. Um, because you know, it, it is a privilege. People treat you better when you're beautiful. That's a statistical, you know, people have studied this. Um, but also then often you're kind of diminished because of your beauty. And I think that's something that Sonia experiences. She volunteers to be on the poster because she is inferior to her older sister in many, many ways, except she's more beautiful. And that's kind of what she's taught to value in herself. And it becomes like, you know, a source of her specialness in that she's on this poster and then she's sort of punished for it forever. And people project a lot of their own beliefs and opinions on her because they don't see her as someone with any depth, which is partly because of her looks. So it's definitely an element in the, in the novel for sure. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea that we, we read stuff into people's looks and the better looking they are, particularly women, the less we read into it. That's an irony. Um, for you, Veronica, writing about not just a pretty girl, but a smart girl who is also pretty, was that interesting, challenging? Well, writing about her was challenging, I think, because usually when I start a novel, when I start writing a novel, I ha I'm on the main character's side. Um, I'm mm. there sort of advocating for them in their story. But with this novel, it was a little different. I wanted to write about someone who had been complicit in a harmful system. And that meant that I wasn't sure how to feel about her for a long time, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. which I think serves the book, uh, or I hope it does. Um, because Do I don't like think- have you, have you got, I mean, is, he, is she someone you've grown into liking, Sonia? I think I sympathize with her now, although I don't, you know, I don't like give her a full free pass, but it's a little hard to figure out. She's 16 when she does a lot of the stuff that we would blame her for. And 16 is a, is a tipping point for people. Are, are you old enough to take responsibility for what you've done or not? You know, that's kind of the question. But what, yeah, what, I have a lot of fun. Insight, did the, the technology of the insight do on that? Did it demarcate between children and adults? I would say... Not really. Yeah. It's I sort mean, of I, the I, way I, with childhood, because in the traditional kind of modern world, children get a pass because they're developing. And when they become adults, we judge them a bit more because in our mind, they seem finished or more finished than children. Yeah. But it seems that in this system, everyone is held accountable for their actions, right. only their actions. Whereas you'd think maybe the actions of a child would reflect on their parents, but not in this system. You're of course, uh, everybody knows you uh, as the author of a number of young adult books. Uh, you're, you're famous, uh, which I'm sure you're 
also ambivalent about. Um, is this book, um, and we have all sorts of uh, images of, of, of all your successful books, is this a, you know, many of you, your best known perhaps for Divergent, is this a book for adults or for young adults or for both? I mean, I think it's primarily a book for adults, but I don't turn away readers who are interested, you know. Um, a lot of teenagers read up, they read older than they are, so. What's the difference, Veronica, between young, young adult literature and adult literature? Well, as you've probably observed, it's mostly a marketing uh, category, but I think for me, the way I've thought about it is about theme. So especially because like for a young adult book, the character is experiencing everything sort of for the first time or one of the first times. And they, they see it, you know, moving forward in time. Like they aren't looking back at old experiences. But in Poster Girl and in my other adult book, um, it's a little bit more about dealing with the aftermath of, of what you did when you were younger and how it affected you and the trauma it left you with or the struggles it gave you um, or the responsibility that you take for it. So I think thematically, they're just, uh, they're a little bit more of like adult concerns. Like how do I move through the world and how much responsibility do I take is a little bit more of a question that you're asking as a, as a grown up as opposed to being an adolescent and just trying to figure out who you are, like the, who, it's not that you don't ask, who am I, you know, as an adult, you certainly do for your entire life, which is how, you know, adolescence continues <laughs> into adulthood. But um, I just, uh, I think when you're considering like, who is this before? Like, who is it concerned with? Um, those are kind of the questions that, you know, lead to picking a category, for, at least for me. Uh, the the Kirkus uh, review was very good, gave it a star, um, and they summarized a wonderfully complex and nuanced book, perfect for readers who grew up on dystopian YA. Um, so I had a couple of thoughts on that. Um, do you really grow up on dystopian YA? I, I mean, is there a whole generation that grew up on that? And then if that's the case, have they ever really grown up? Well, I think sort of, um, there was, you know, uh, I would say 10 years ago, you know, the big surge of, of dystopia in YA was like a, tr a trend. Um, after the, after Twilight, there was the Hunger Games as like the yeah. big YA book. And then around the time that the Hunger Games became popular, there were like, you know, myriad dystopian books. So I think that's what the Kirkus Review is referring to, specifically just that kind of moment in time where everybody was hungry for this type of story. Um, but I don't know, as to whether they've grown up. The other day I was in uh, like the signing line at an event and a young woman who seemed very much like an adult to me showed me a picture of herself at 12 years old at one of my book signings. <laughs> so to me, it seems that they have grown up, yes. Well, I mean, you're an important figure in their life and your work's important. Um, I, you know, as all my questions are a bit dumb, but this is a particularly dumb one. Um, for you, because this generation loves your work, do you have any 
generalizations about them. We've done lots of shows about the impact of technology, of social media, of depression, of isolation, of loneliness, particularly in COVID. Um, is there something about this generation of young people grew up perhaps in the first 20 years of the 21st century that makes them different from other young people? In well, one thing, one thing I think they have in common is that they don't have a lot of room to grow and make mistakes in the, in the same way because they're being observed all the time. Um, there are obviously some exceptions, but they have lived, you know, their entire life on the internet. And what that means is that like everything on the internet is permanent. You can delete it, but you can like, someone will always find it. So there's this, I don't know, they've lived the whole time. Like someone is watching and how much space do you really have to mess up if mm. someone is always watching? So I feel tremendous sympathy for them. It's a very difficult thing to navigate. I'm sure it fosters a lot, a lot of anxiety. It does in me and I didn't grow up with it. Um, thankfully, I, wasn't on... I mean, I have kids and when I was growing up, I would travel for months and my parents couldn't and wouldn't know where I was. Now, if I don't hear from even my kids every two or three days, I'm worried. So it goes both ways. This constant um, technological ability to communicate is, is in some ways quite troubling, isn't it? Yeah, I was just thinking the other day about how I used to leave a note on the counter for my mom. And now no one has ever left a, like as an adult, no one leaves notes on the counter anymore. That's not that you text someone. Where are you? You know, yeah. and um, everyone fears the, the other thing is everybody fears the worst. If you haven't heard from someone from for about 20 minutes, you 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 conclude that they must have died. They must have been murdered or run over or something. Yeah, the expectation is immediate response, which is intense. Because that means everybody has to be monitoring their device at all times. What about the, the cinematic quality of, of your work and thinking about dystopias in, in cinematic terms? Uh, Blade Runner, of course, was very influential. I just saw a new cut of it, magnificent movie, uh, which in many ways still remains very relevant. It's, of course, it's a book about smart machines. Your book, this post-dystopian novel, Poster Girl, um, what's happened to the smart machines? What's happened to the the insights of the world, have they just been destroyed? Have they gone away? Yeah, I think the the feeling in Poster Girl is that um, something bad has happened, <laughs> like before the insight was even developed. Like the world is a little bit destroyed, um, or at least deteriorating. And there's not a lot of travel between um, different segments of the population. So that's not a that's not a central concern of the world building. I didn't really think like develop what the rest of the world was like but um it's certainly not like a very technologically advanced world it's sort of a hop skip and a jump away from our own um what's the, the world look like, like um veronica i mean in blade runner the world looked very black and white um very old-fashioned uh wh what about the elements of environmental catastrophe along with AI and pandemics and all these other terrible things that seem to be happening to us. Yeah, so um, there's no more cars. There's only public transportation in this world. Um, there's not a lot of free movement. There's no AI. 
Um, although I think the suggestion is that there's that what runs the inside is like a very sophisticated, you know, sort of series of programs um, that can kind of analyze movement and speech patterns and things like that to determine bad behavior. So there is some sophisticated computing going on, but um, a little less in terms of, you know, what we might, other things that futuristic books might be concerned with, like space travel or, um, I don't know, it didn't really delve into like disease that much, but yeah. Maybe no public trans, uh, all public transportation. Maybe it's appropriate that the book was situated in Seattle and Portland. Why did you choose to place them where? Why did you not invent your own post-apocalyptic town? Well, I wanted to keep it feeling grounded, but also I wrote this book earlier, earlier in the pandemic. Um, mm. I still wasn't traveling. And I knew I didn't want to set it in Chicago again. I've written two, yeah. I mean, the Di Divergent series is set in Chicago. And then my last book, Chosen Ones, uh, was also set in Chicago. So I was like, okay, you can't, <laughs> you can't destroy yeah. Chicago that many times. Um, it'll start to feel familiar, you know. Um, and so I had to rely on my memory of a place primarily. And I've only been to a few cities and really explored them and walked around in them and gotten the feeling for them. And Seattle is one of them. And you know, practically, it also works for the story. It borders um, a national park. And so that kind of, I needed some wilderness for various reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, Dave Eggers, I mean, he's a Bay Area writer, but his, I mean, it's a surveillance dystopia is situated in the Bay Area. So, which is the heart, of course, of surveillance technology. Did you ever consider yeah. basing it in San Francisco or Los Angeles? Um, I thought about Los Angeles because I do know that city well also. Um, but I don't know. It wasn't it wasn't the right feeling. It was so big and sprawling um, already. And then also bordered by, I mean, it's like surrounded by desert. So it just didn't work in the same way for what I had planned. Um, I needed places for, for people to hide. And it's not that you can't find that outside of Los Angeles. Obviously, there's mountains and forests and stuff. But um, I don't know. There was something that just felt right about the kind of melancholy of the Seattle yeah, area. Maybe it's that. a bit I more mean, romantic. Right. I mean, when I was actually thinking about uh, Blade Runner now, it, it, it could have been based in Seattle. It rained the whole time. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you get what you deserve. You're, you probably won't be welcome in Seattle or Portland, uh, Veronica. They'll probably take it personally that you've situated well, such a, 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 a grim future there oh okay well good luck um <laughs> thank you your um your books get a lot of coverage even in the classroom would you like this book to become a, a classroom text do you think it could be useful for teachers i i mean i think so i uh it's always it's always flattering when someone wants to teach your work. So I would never object to it. But also, I mean, I'm not the one to deter. I wouldn't have thought that Divergent would be too terribly useful in the classroom, but it does seem to be to people. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. That's up to somebody else to decide, not me. You have this quote in the book uh, from the dystopian world that got destroyed uh what's right is right in your view what is right 
it's not just what right is right, which of course is meaningless, but what is right for you, Veronica? What, what sense of right and wrong drives your work, your view of the world? Um, Easy question. Well, yes, that's a, that's a deep question. Um, it is, of course, a nonsense slogan, like intentionally nonsense. Well, but, well it's Orwellian. Um, I mean, really, it just as, you know. I yeah. mean, that could have been a what's right is right could have come out of Orwell's 1984. Or actually, probably out of 1984, what's right is wrong. No, no, Or, I don't know, some kind of weird mashed up word. <laughs> Double speak? Is that what they, yeah. Um Anyway, what's right for me? I don't know. Um, I don't write from a place of certainty, I think, is why this that makes this question hard. I, I write with a lot of questions, um, and I don't find that I find answers very often. Um, writing is an exploratory process, and that's why I don't have, like, takeaways for my book, like, here's what you should get out of Poster Girl. Like, I don't know. Um, like some thoughts and questions would be good, but that's about as far as I've gone. So I, uh, I only write if there's an unanswered question in myself. So I suppose I mean, curiosity is what's right. right. The New York Times um, titles uh, for a group chat, for a discussion on, on the poster girl, what happens to people who support a corrupt government, a very political take in the context of perhaps America today and the crisis of truth? Um, is some of this book a response to what's happening in America in 2022? You mean uh, beyond our smartphone obsession? Beyond our smartphone mm -hmm. obsession, the crisis of truth, the disappearance of journalism, or some people believe the disappearance of journalism, the fact that nobody trusts anyone else, that we all have our own versions of truth. Um, a number of people in this country seem to be very suspicious and critical, perhaps even hostile to democracy. I think um, I have this deep desire to at least try to understand why people think the way that they do. I do think we have a tendency right now to feel like we know everything about people um, based on some opinion or, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm not saying that anyone has to condone any opinion that they don't agree with, but I, I do think it's important to know why people form those opinions. And it could be one of the questions that drove me to write this because I wanted to understand her, you know, understand Sonia. And um, yeah, so I suppose it is a response to that, to our, I don't, we, we do lack curiosity about each other. It's hard, it's hard to have, you know, if anyone's in a family where they have a lot of political disagreements, um, you know that it's just like, it's upsetting and disturbing to disagree about these fundamental things. And it's hard to let someone talk about that stuff um, and not feel upset by it. But, but we have to talk to each other because this clearly doesn't work without that. Well, we need to talk to one another, and one way we perhaps can is by reading uh, Veronica Roth's new book, Poster Girl, out today. Congratulations, um, Veronica. I mean, for a, thank you. I don't know how many how many books is what what number book is this? Um, six novels. Yeah, gonna, two short stories. Or are you just going to write endlessly? 
I think I'm going to write endlessly. That's my plan. Right till they well, tell we'll have to come back on the show. What else are you reading? Uh, what what books do you enjoy when you're not writing? Um, well, I I do read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Um, what I'm reading right now, I'm in the middle of, is The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings, which is a kind of alternate reality. Uh, but there are witches. Um, but it's very literary fiction, kind of beautiful. Um, definitely recommend. It's really lovely so far. But I do read, uh, yes, genre fiction a lot of the time. 